Good morning. Good morning. Today is uh, Sunday, August 15th, <coughs> 2021, and we're just launching right into Show here. Um, I'm the only person in the Zendo who doesn't have a mask on, and we're foregoing chanting. <clears throat> I hope people aren't too uh, envious of my not having a mask on. <laughs> I do have to give this talk. I think it comes out even. <clears throat> um, my topic today is anatta. It's the uh, Pali word for not self or no self. And that's one of the three <clears throat> characteristics of existence <clears throat> as uh, defined by the Buddha. And the three are dukkha or suffering or vexation dissatisfaction, anika, which is impermanence, uh, the law of ceaseless change, and anatta, uh, the teaching of no self. Really, these three things sum up this world we live in. Uh, it, it's universally true, <clears throat> something that we believe, we can come to believe intellectually, uh, and then through practice, we really come to understand it um, on a deeper level. The, the Buddha taught anatta as, uh, in, in uh, two ways, uh, it seems to me, looking at the teachings. Uh, first is the natural consequence of impermanence. If there's nothing permanent or everlasting, Nothing can have a fixed self. <clears throat> Everything is in flux. Uh, he also, he also uh, taught it uh, by pointing out that nothing is under our control. Not our mind, not our body, and of course not the world that we see as outside ourselves. And um, I'm going to briefly read from this book, Why Buddhism is True, by Robert Wright, uh, <clears throat> where he outlines uh, the Buddha's argument. Uh, just so you know, I did read from this book in a Dharma talk maybe a year and a half or so ago. Um, <clears throat> Robert Wright is an uh, evolutionary psychologist, uh, professor, and also a practitioner of Vipassana Buddhism. <clears throat> really good book, Why Buddhism is True, especially if you're overly intellectual like I am. So this is the beginning of a chapter called Your, Your CEO <clears throat> is MIA. And he says this, Apparently the Buddha's famous discourse on the not-self didn't immediately convert everyone to his way of thinking. Sometime after delivering it, according to Buddhist scripture, he runs into a man named Agavasana, a braggart, who has assembled a large audience to help watch him vanquish the Buddha in a debate about the self. Agavasana begins the proceedings by challenging the Buddha's claim <clears throat> that the self can't be found in any of the five aggregates. So just to back up here, the five aggregates are also known as the five skandhas, uh, 
which are the Buddha said was the basically our entire being is composed of these five aggregates. <clears throat> so we're not going to go too much deeper into that right now, but just to go on with Agavasana, he declares, form is myself, feeling is myself, perception is myself, mental formations are myself, consciousness is myself. <clears throat> so he's now named each of the five skandhas. And uh, Robert Wright goes on, this is a pretty blatant provocation, a direct assault on the Buddha's worldview. But the Buddha, being the Buddha, remains calm. He says, very well then, Agavasana, I will cross-question you on this matter. If you've read many of the Buddha's discourses, you know that Agavasana's convictions will not survive the ensuing dialogue in good shape. The only question is which rhetorical tool the Buddha will use to dispel his interlocutor's, interlocutor's confusion. Turns out the answer is the king metaphor. The Buddha asks, would a consecrated noble warrior king, such as King Pasendai of Kosala or King Ajatasattu Vedahiputta of Magadha wield the power in his own domain to execute those who deserve execution, to fine those who deserve to be fined, and to banish those who deserve to be banished? Yes, Master Gotama, answers Agavasana. He would wield it, and he would deserve to wield it. The Buddha then says, what do you think, Agavasana? When you say form is myself, do you wield power over that form? May my form be thus, may my form not be thus? Agavasana says nothing. The Buddha repeats the question. Agavasana remains silent. <clears throat> now the Buddha pulls out the big guns. He reminds Agavasana that when anyone doesn't answer when asked a legitimate question by the Tathagata, that is the Buddha, up to three times, his head splits into seven pieces right here. <laughs> At that point, Agavasana looks up and ominously sees a spirit with an iron thunderbolt in hand. The spirit is aptly named Thunderbolt in hand. <laughs> the spirit speaks up, warning that if Agavasana doesn't answer when asked a legitimate question by the Blessed One up to three times, I will split his head into seven pieces right here. <clears throat> Thus incentivized, <laughs> Agavasana answers the Buddhist question. No, Master Gotama, he doesn't. He admits, having complete, he admits, have complete power over his body. The Buddha then runs through the other aggregates, feeling, perception, and so on. Agavasana sees that no, he doesn't have the power over any of these things that a king has over his domain. So the Buddha has made his point. You, the quote, you that experiences feelings and perceptions and entertains thoughts, isn't really in complete control of these things. If you think that somewhere inside your head there's a kind of supreme ruler, a chief executive, well, there's some question as to where exactly you would find it. 2,500 years later, the science of psychology is talking the Buddha's language. Well, not exactly his language. Psychologists don't often assert that you're not the king of your personal domain, since these days there aren't many kings who wield actual power over their own domains. Psychologists use more modern terminology. As Robert Kurtzbahn, a professor of psychology at Penn, puts it, 
you aren't the president, the central executive, the prime minister. The conscious self is not some sort of all-powerful executive authority. So you can get at it either way. You can see that if there's a, there, there can't be any self that has any kind of unchanging nature. And if there is a self, what does it do? If it can't control our mind or body, anything that's us, <clears throat> how can we say that there is some sort of self? Now this sometimes gets into a bit of a argument or discussion among Buddhist teachers. Um, it's really, I think, a problem of terminology. Uh, many people, including uh, some, a lot of the Vipassana teachers, have pointed out that the Buddha never said there is no self. Instead, it was this formulation of not-self. And when the Buddha was actually asked directly by somebody else, uh, Master, is there a self? He didn't answer. He, he remained silent. And when the questioner then asked, well, then, is there not a self? Again, he didn't answer. And after the person left, his uh, attendant, Ananda, came to him and said, why did the Blessed One not answer this question? And uh, he said, basically, there are certain questions that are better left unanswered because the answer only leads us into speculation and leads us away from the practice of dropping our desires, dropping our attachments. <clears throat> and he said that either side, saying there is no self or there is a self, leads to one extreme or the other, either to annihilation, there's nothing there, I can do whatever I want, or to uh, the false belief in eternalism, there's something permanent that exists throughout time. Uh, I went to... Uh, Wabhula Rapola Walpola, uh, who wrote a book called What the Buddha Taught, to get the official uh, an official <clears throat> definition. And uh, here's what he says. What we call I, or being, is only a combination of physical and mental aggregates. And again, those are the skandhas. Form, perception, feeling, mental formations, consciousness which are working together interdependently in a flux of momentary change within the law of cause and effect. And there is nothing permanent, everlasting, unchanging, and eternal in the whole of existence. <clears throat> what there is, then, is just dependent co-arising. Because this happens, that happens. Though it's never so simple as one cause and one effect closer you look at existence, the deeper you peer, the more complicated and amazing it is. Uh, remember when I was uh, <clears throat> studying biology uh, on my way to becoming a nurse, uh, I was just amazed at what an incredible Rube Goldberg machine living beings are. The processes that go on within ourselves a level of complexity that's just absolutely astounding. And when you've understood one level, great, because there's more levels down beneath it. Uh, it just, it's like some sort of fractal nightmare 
um, <clears throat> it, it's really everything that we think we know about reality is so crude and simplistic and so completely separate from the real truth. It's like, as I've said before, it's like a child's crayon drawings pinned up on the refrigerator. And of all those things, our belief in some sort of self is really a classic example. So then, then it leads you to ask, well, okay, right, right. The self isn't the way I'm picturing it in my mind, but, but there's something. What is this sense I have of a self? What is this sense of other people that other people have that I'm a person? And uh, I've, I've sometimes tried to explain that in, you know, introductory talks and whatnot with the metaphor of uh, an eddy in a stream. So you've got a stream flowing past, and let's say there's a bush or a tree on the bank, and it's dipping down, there's a twig dipping down into the water, and right there where the stream goes by, that forms a little eddy, you know, and I can point to it and say, look, there's a little whirlpool there. How about that? And there is. There's something there. But what is it? Is it a thing? The water in it is, is moving through at the rate of whatever rate the stream is going. If the twig moves, the eddy changes. If the tree is cut down, there is no eddy. <clears throat> this, this self of ours, whatever it is, is totally contingent. Our existence, as the Buddha often pointed out, is contingent on our taking our next breath. Stop the breathing, boom, it's gone. I did a, some reading. Uh, part of this book, Why Buddhism is True, is Robert Wright interviewing uh, Joseph Goldstein. Uh, Joseph Goldstein is a Vipassana teacher who studied with Ajahn Chah, a, a Thai forest master, uh, who we'll get into later. Uh, he trained as a monk in the Thai forest tradition and later became one of the founders of the Insight Meditation Center in Barrie, Massachusetts. He's been practicing since 1975 <clears throat> with teachers in the Theravadan and the Tibetan traditions. He's written some books. Uh, and he, he's really good on this whole question of sort of understanding what we mean by a self and one of his examples is a rainbow. We can definitely see a rainbow. There it is. It's pretty amazing. But you can't pick it up. It's just a, an artifact of light refracted through water droplets. And it's temporary. It's not going to last. But the example he gives I like the best is of the Big Dipper. And I'm going to read from that. This is in an interview, this interview with Robert Wright. of Roshi now, shuffling my papers. <clears throat> so here it is. This is Joseph Goldstein speaking. You go out at night 
and if it's a clear night and the stars are out, most people can recognize the constellation of the Big Dipper. The question then is, is there really a Big Dipper up there? <clears throat> the Big Dipper is a concept which we're overlaying on a certain pattern of stars, but there's no Big Dipper. So self is like Big Dipper. The notion of self is a concept, just like Big Dipper is a concept, and we're overlaying that concept of self onto this pattern of mental, physical, emotional content. We're putting a name. We're giving a designation of Joseph, Bob, Big Dipper. But what's interesting is that even though we know the Big Dipper is a concept and there's no Big Dipper in the sky, to go out at night, look up at the sky, and see if it's possible not to see the Big Dipper. It's very difficult because we've been so conditioned to see it in a certain way. It's helpful to realize that the concept of Big Dipper can be useful just like the concept of self can be useful. One of the stars of Big Dipper actually points to the North Star. Well, here I'd quibble, it takes two stars to point. <clears throat> but it's true, if you take the two stars on the far side of the bucket and go up from the bucket, you'll reach the North Star, and then you'll know which way north is. He says, if you're out in the middle of the ocean and you want to navigate, you need to find the north, and the concept can be helpful. We're not suggesting, either with Big Dipper or Self, to get rid of the concept, but to understand that that's what it is. When we see that Big Dipper is a concept, even though we use it, what happens is that when we look up at the sky, we see the sky undivided. It's possible to see all the stars as part of a unity. Imagine what it would be like if we could experience the whole world not bound or limited by the concept of the self. We need to use it to operate on the relative level, but if we have a deeper wisdom that it is just a concept, then so many aspects of our separateness falls away. And that's why this whole question of self, this whole teaching of no self, is so important because really our, our clinging to this crude and inaccurate belief in this me in here that I need to protect and give preference to, to is the cause of suffering, of pervasive suffering. The Buddha spelled it out really in his diagnosis, which is the second noble truth, the cause of dukkha, the cause of vexation, cause of suffering is our self-referential grasping and avoiding. Our reflexive belief in a self that needs to be protected and promoted. It can help to think it through, and I know a lot more is done with that in Vipassana Buddha, Buddhism than we do in Zen, um, but in both, the real key is meditation. It's just that repetitive practice of finding yourself caught up in thought, in feeling, in delusion, and just letting it go and returning to what's actually there. 
being able to look up at the sky and not have that overlay, not see that Big Dipper. Um, there's a, reminds me of a joke that Stephen Wright told. I don't know how many people know who Stephen Wright is. It's a <clears throat> rather unprepossessing guy with a very sort of <clears throat> depressed affect uh, who just has a whole string of amazing one-liners. So one of them is this. It says, I have a map of the United States. It's actual size. Which is pretty cool. <laughs> That's a really good map. But <clears throat> we all have maps that are not actual size and uh, which leave out what's real and put in what's not real, like the overlay of the Big Dipper. Um, the, the Chinese uh, teacher, Sheng Yen, who died some years back, uh, had an exercise he used to give people late in Sashin. I don't know how often he did this, but in one Sashin where I read, the, read his talks, which was just to go outside. This was late in Sashin when you know the mind was fairly clean and and uh, you could do it, and just look at everything without a label. Just look. It's, it's kind of fun to do that. You know, sometimes when you're on a walk, <clears throat> of course, you're, you're focused on your practice, but you can set that aside for a moment and do this other practice, which is just to see everything without laying anything on top of it as uh, the Chinese master Joshu, the ancient master, said, put your mind where there is no design. Reminded also of something that the uh, French poet and philosopher Paul Valéry, who lived until 1945, said, to see is to forget the name of the thing one sees. As long as we've got the label in there, we're not really seeing. We're, we're divided. <clears throat> That's why Zen is called a teaching beyond words and letters. Words and letters are powerless to actually paint a true picture of the world. Paul Valery said something else great. He said, the best way to make your dreams come true is to wake up. <clears throat> One uh, thing that may be helpful to understand, hopefully I have time to squeeze this in, uh, is how it is that we come to believe so strongly in a self. And here Robert Wright is really helpful, being an evolutionary psychologist. That's, of course, where he finds the problem. And uh, this is a little further on from the previous passage that I read. And it's in a section that says the Darwinian benefits of self-delusion. And uh, he re refers to something he talked about earlier in the book where they took a guy uh, uh, and sent a, a message, a subliminal message to him that could only be seen by his right hemisphere that uh, was a, a cue for him to walk, uh, but couldn't be seen by his left hemisphere. And then they asked him what he was doing when he got up and started walking. And he said he was going to get a soda. 
So basically, he made something up to explain what he was doing because his left hemisphere had no idea why he was doing it. So he says, remember the guy whose right hemisphere was told to walk and whose left hemisphere, when asked where he was going, said he was going to get a soda. His answer wasn't really true, but it does inspire a kind of confidence in him. He seems like a guy who is in charge of himself, who doesn't go around doing things for no good reason. Compare him with a guy who offers a more truthful account. I don't really know why I got up or where I'm going. Sometimes I just do stuff for reasons that make no sense to me. If those two guys were your neighbors in a hunter-gatherer village, which one would you want to go hunting with? Which one would you want to become friends with? During human evolution, the answers to such, such questions mattered. If you were thought unworthy of collaboration and friendship, your genes were in trouble. In short, from natural selection's point of view, it's good for you to tell a coherent story about yourself, to depict yourself as a rational, self-aware actor. So whenever your actual motivations aren't accessible to the part of your brain that communicates with the world, it would make sense for that part of your brain to generate stories about your motivation. <clears throat> This reminds me of Rochi Kaplow's saying, the reasons people give for what they do are never the real reasons, which I always took to be that people sort of lied about it to make themselves look better. But I've come to see it's because they fool themselves too. Somebody asks, you know, why are you practicing Zen? Maybe you come up with an answer, but do you really know? I remember a discussion that happened in the Zendo many years ago, 40 years ago, People were talking about why they came to the center, <clears throat> a bunch of <clears throat> idealistic 20-somethings. And one guy who was from New York City and had a thick New York accent said, I come here by instinct. <laughs> Probably the best answer. He says, he goes on, of course, co of course coherence of motivation, though a desirable qual quality in a friend or collaborator, isn't by itself decisive. If someone has clear, consistent goals but always fails to reach them or fails to contribute much to team endeavors or doesn't keep promises, he or she won't be overloaded with friends and collaborators. So you would expect us to tell and believe not just coherent stories about ourselves, but flattering stories. And by and large, we do. And then he tells about other studies that show that Whenever people are asked to rate their skills in any dimension, uh, you put them all together and it seems that everyone is above average, just like on Prairie Home Companion. He says, this sort of self-appraisal can firmly resist evidence. One study of 50 people found that on average, they rated their driving skill toward the expert end of the spectrum which would be less noticeable if it were not for the fact that all 50 had recently been in car accidents <laughs> and two-thirds of them had been deemed responsible for the accidents by police. <laughs> and then he goes on beyond that and talks about moral fiber. Everyone thinks that they're more moral than the next person. All of us have this tendency, it's built into us, to attribute the best of motives to ourselves when we do something wrong and to suspect others of having the basest of motives. There's this, this, this inbred self-referential bias. 
and it is inbred. That's what, what Robert Wright is saying. It's something that's been <clears throat> passed down to us through our genes. And so it's difficult to overcome. <clears throat> Not saying that it cannot be overcome, but you shouldn't be surprised when you find that you're selfish. If you're in a crowd of people and someone says your name, you hear it amid all the clatter, all the different words that you easily ignore. Your name pops out. It's because of this, this deeply built-in habit. <clears throat> okay, I want to I want to move ahead and get into the practice aspect of this teaching, this teaching of no self, and I cannot think of a better place to go than Ajahn Chah. As I said earlier, he is a forest master uh, in the Thai forest tradition. Died uh, fairly recently. Here, let me. Yeah, he lived from nineteen nineteen to nineteen ninety two, and uh, he was a teacher of a whole generation of American Vipassana teachers. And there's a number of books by him. I'm going to be reading from one called Everything Arises, Everything Falls Away, Teachings on Impermanence and the End of Suffering. And this is all from a section called Anatta, Not Self. I'm going to break in in the middle here. He says, the Buddha used this analogy. The aggregation that is us is merely a coming together of the elements of earth, water, fire, and air. <clears throat> of course, earth, water, fire, and air is an old understanding, but uh, we can just say atoms and molecules and subatomic particles and just all the stuff of this world. If you try to find an actual person there, you can't. There are only these collections of elements. But for all our lives, we never thought to separate them like this to see what's really there. We have only thought, this is me, this is mine. We've always seen everything in terms of a self, never seeing that there are merely earth, water, fire, and air. But the Buddha teaches in this way. He talks about the four elements and urges us to see that this is what we are. There are earth, water, fire, and air. There is no person here. Contemplate these elements to see that there is no being or individual, but only earth, water, fire, and air. It's deep, isn't it? It's hidden deep. People will look, but they can't see it. We're used to thinking in terms of self and other all the time, so our meditation is still not very deep. It doesn't reach the truth, and we don't get beyond the way things appear to be. We remain stuck in the conventions of the world, and being stuck in the world means re remaining in the cycle of transformation, getting things and losing them, 
dying and being born, being born and dying, suffering in the realm of confusion. Whatever we wish for and aspire to doesn't really work out the way we want because we are seeing things wrongly. With this kind of grasping attachment, we are still very far indeed from the real path of Dharma. <clears throat> Let's get to work right now. Our practice of Dharma should be getting us beyond suffering. If we can't fully transcend suffering, then we should at least be able to transcend it a little now in the present. For example, when someone speaks harshly to us, if we don't get angry, we have transcended suffering. If we get angry, we haven't transcended dukkha. So this is a really good point. Um, we tend to think in terms of all or nothing, of enlightenment or not enlightenment or full enlightenment or not full enlightenment, becoming a Buddha or being an ordinary person. But the fact of the matter is the minute we begin practicing, the minute we sincerely sit down and uh, drop our thoughts and our prejudices, things start to change and shift. And we do find often that criticism rolls more easily off our back. Uh, we're better able to take the bad news of things that we've screwed up and, and see ourselves whole and be okay with that. <clears throat> you can avoid that kind of progress by continually seeing your practice in terms of self-aggrandizement, comparing yourself with other people or berating yourself. Because I'm not very good at this. I don't know why I even bother. It's a much healthier way to just realize, okay, I am who I am. I'm full of problems. <clears throat> I'm full of shortcomings. But I have faith that if I follow this path, if I turn my mind in a wholesome and healthy direction, things will change. The law of causation will begin to work in my behalf. He goes on and says, if someone speaks harshly to us, if we reflect on Dharma, we will see that it is just heaps of earth involved. Okay, he is criticizing me. He's just criticizing a heap of earth. One heap of earth is criticizing another heap of earth. Water is criticizing water. Air is criticizing air. Fire is criticizing fire. But if we really see things in this way, then others will probably call us mad. He doesn't care about anything. He has no feelings. When someone dies, we won't get upset and cry. They will call us crazy. Okay, at this point, I cannot resist. Truman knows what's coming. I'm going to have to dip into Anthony DeMello. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Anthony DeMello uh, was a Jesuit priest and uh, gave a lot of talks and seminars all over the world, and out of one of them, uh, this book was created from the transcript. It's called Awareness, the Perils and Opportunities of Reality. And um, right to our topic is Anthony DeMello. And he says, do you want to see how mechanical you really are? My, that's a lovely shirt you're wearing. You feel good hearing that. For a shirt, for heaven's sake. 
You feel proud of yourself when you hear that. People come over to my center in India and they say, what a lovely place, these lovely trees, this lovely climate, and already I'm feeling good until I catch myself feeling good and I say, hey, can you imagine anything as stupid as that? I'm not responsible for those trees. I wasn't responsible for choosing the location. I didn't order the weather. It just happened. But me got in there, and so I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good about my culture and my nation. How stupid can you get? <clears throat> Parenthetically, let me mention that there are a lot of stupid people in this world. How stupid can you get? I mean that. I'm told my great Indian culture has produced all these mystics. I didn't produce them. I'm not responsible for them. Or they tell me, this country of yours and its poverty is disgusting. I feel ashamed, but I didn't create it. What's going on? Did you ever stop to think? People tell you, I think you're very charming, so I feel wonderful. I get a positive stroke. That's why they call it, I'm okay, you're okay. I'm going to write a book someday, and the title will be, I'm an ass, you're an ass. <laughs> that is the most liberating, wonderful thing in the world when you openly admit you're an ass. That is, you're conditioned. It's wonderful. When people tell me you're wrong, I say, what can you expect of an ass? Everybody has to be disarmed. In the final liberation, I'm an ass, you're an ass. Normally, the way it goes, I press a button and you're up, I press another button and you're down, and you like that. How many people do you know who are unaffected by praise or blame? That isn't human, we say. Human means you have to, have a you have to be a little monkey so everybody can twist your tail and you do whatever you ought to be doing. But is that human? If you find me charming, it means that right now you're in a good mood, nothing more. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. <clears throat> he says, do you like being controlled? Let me tell you something. If you ever let yourself feel good when people tell you that you're okay, you are preparing yourself to feel bad when they tell you you're not good. As long as you live to fulfill other people's expectations, you better watch what you wear, how you comb your hair, whether your shoes are polished, in short, whether you live up to every damned expectation of theirs. Do you call that human? This is what you'll discover when you observe yourself. You'll be horrified. The fact of the matter is that you're neither okay nor not okay. You may fit the current mood or trend or fashion. Does that mean you've become okay? Does your okayness depend on that? Does it depend on what people think of you? The great physicist Richard Feynman wrote a book entitled, What Do You Care What Other People Think? Anybody who's focused on something worthwhile has to throw away their reliance on the opinions of other people. It's extremely helpful in Zen practice to stop caring quite so much about what your teacher thinks of you or how you measure up to other people. This practice is an experiment we're doing on our own. We're really, for the most part, self-directed. The teacher's role, for the most part, is just to encourage you to continue, to find your own way. It's very little that you can be told that you wouldn't be better off finding out on your own. 
Does your okayness depend on that? Does it depend on what people think of you? Jesus Christ must have been pretty not okay by those standards. You're not okay and you're not not okay. You're you. I hope that is going to be the big discovery, at least for some of you. If three or four of you make this discovery during these days we spend together, what a wonderful thing. Extraordinary. Cut out all the okay stuff and the not okay stuff. Cut out all the judgments and simply observe and watch. You'll make great discoveries. Those discoveries will change you. You won't have to make the slightest effort. Believe me. I'd qualify that a little bit and say you do have to make an effort, but it's not an effort to effect a change. Zazen is simpler than that. Just an effort to look directly. It's the effort of dropping the things we get caught up on that we're caught up in that we're reluctant to let go. Okay. Thank you for indulging me. I'm going to go back to Ajahn Chah where he said, if someone dies and we won't get upset and cry, they'll call us crazy. It really comes down to practicing and realizing for ourselves. Getting beyond suffering doesn't depend on others' opinions of us, but on our own individual state of mind. Never mind what they say. If we experience the truth for ourselves, then we can dwell at ease. When difficulties occur, recollect recollect Dharma. Think of what your spiritual guides have taught you. They teach you to let go, to have restraint and self-control, to put things down. They teach you to strive in this way to solve your problems. The Dharma that you study is just for solving your problems. What kind of problems are we talking about? How about your families? Do you have any problems there? Any problems with your children, your spouses, your friends, or your work? All these things give you headaches sometimes, don't they? These are the problems we are talking about. The teachings are telling you that you can resolve the problems of daily life with Dharma. We have been born as human beings. It should be possible to live with happy minds. We do our work according to our responsibilities. If things get difficult, we practice endurance. Earning a living in the right way is one sort of Dharma practice, the practice of ethical living. Living happily and harmoniously like this is already pretty good. We usually take a loss, however. Don't take a loss. If you go to a center or a monastery to meditate and then go home and fight, that's a loss. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's just a loss to do this. This means you don't see the Dharma even a little tiny bit. There's no profit at all. Of course, we all slip up. I don't think that everyone who's come to the center and begun a practice of meditation has avoided all arguments or fights. I haven't quite managed to do that myself. But it changes over time. The the less tightly we hold on to our picture of ourself, the easier it is to let those things go, the less affected we are by criticism the less importance we give to the importance of other people. It is true that it's kind of strange when you find somebody who isn't that affected by what others think, but it's also kind of wonderful. 
<clears throat> I know when uh, when I was younger, uh, my sense of self was just a horrible burden. Maybe that's the reason why I took up Zen practice. <laughs> there, I found it. Um, when I w- when I would talk with someone, half of my mind was standing behind myself trying to see what I looked like. It's just this painful self-consciousness. And how that went away, I don't even know. But at some point, it just wasn't there anymore. A lot of it fell away from me when I stopped drinking and started going to AA. Because a lot of AA involves getting rid of that overwhelming sense of self. They're really into that. They're really tuned in to that. So I know within just a few weeks, I remember walking into my house and I would walk up the driveway and walk around this big bush and in the front door and I noticed that something was different and what was different was as I walked around the bush, my mind didn't jump up into the imagination of some sort of projection of what I would look like to somebody standing on the street and watching me walk into my house. That just went away. And it hasn't come back. And good riddance. Okay, I'm going to go on with a little more, make sure I'm not in trouble, with a little more of Ajahn Chah. He says, whenever you come to the monastery, you keep hearing the same thing. This is not us. That is not ours. The conflict goes on. The world and the Dharma are in conflict. The world will not give up its viewpoint. This is us. These things are ours. But the Ajans, that is the teachers, keep telling you, this is not us. These things are not ours. After some time, after getting these reminders regularly and looking at your experience, you can start to gain insight into the way things really are and your thinking will change. Then you will recognize that what the Ajans have been telling you is true. But if you only come once in a while, then you are hearing one thing in the monastery, and as soon as you go back home, you will be hearing and thinking something else, and the struggle and dissonance go on. It will take a long time of going back and forth to see the truth and make up your mind. If you have to go through this, experiencing confusion as to, you have to go through this, experiencing confusion as to who is telling the truth, but thinking it through and meditating on it, you can start to see clearly. Listening to Dharma has value like this. Over time, it sinks in, and you begin to investigate sincerely and persistently. It's one of the reasons teachers say the same thing again and again. It takes time to sink in. Even the great teachers, like I'm thinking of Bankai, uh, just again and again saying the same thing. learning about the shortcomings of the world, becoming aware of your aging, you begin to take it to heart. It's another thing that helps getting older. You realize, oh yeah, I am becoming old. And that might mean that I am going to die. It's very hard to pick that up early, although some people do. Most people resist hearing these things at first, but after some time we may come around. Then we realize that the teachings are true. What is called ours is just a convention. What we call me is just a convention.
If we think about this, we will approach and enter the Dharma genuinely. It's like seeing a poisonous snake, such as a cobra, that comes slithering along. It has a lot of poison, and if we don't know what it is, or we don't see it, we won't be cautious of it, and we might step on it and be bitten. But we know what a cobra is. We know it's poisonous. When we see one coming, we recognize it and don't go close to it. We keep a safe distance, and then we won't be harmed. Even though the snake is poisonous, we aren't affected. We leave it alone and protect ourselves. The poison is still there, but it's as if it weren't, and we don't have to, f- to suffer. Like this, we recognize what is harmful, and we stay away from it. Body and mind are their own sort of poisonous snakes. Have you ever noticed this? When your body is healthy and strong, you're exuberant. Yes, the stars are in my favor. But sometimes you're tormented by illness or pain and you moan, Oh man, what kind of karma is this? That's a poisonous snake. It's the same for the mind. If things are going well, you're pleased and feel that life's not bad. Then something upsets you and you may lose sleep over it, lying in bed with your tears flowing. It's poisonous like this. The snake is biting us, but we aren't aware of it. The Buddha wanted us to study Dharma to know our own minds and bodies. Every morning in the monastery chanting service we recite, bodily form is impermanent, sensation is impermanent, perception is impermanent, mental formations are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent. Throughout body and mind, there's nothing but impermanence. There's nothing that is us or ours. Existing and then gone, appearing and passing away, This is the way it is at all times and in all places. And skipping ahead again, the terrible sufferings that people experience are only products of their own minds. Some people are very fearful. It's because they let their minds run wild, thinking things over excessively. When they are alone alone in some dark place, they become terrified thinking of ghosts or whatever, and they may jump up and run away. It's only thinking that makes them run. The ignorant mind proliferates its thoughts in this way. It's not us, not ours, not certain in the slightest way, that is the ignorant mind, but it can be trained. If one is bold, one will think differently, increasing boldness and driving out feelings of fear. So I really, I find it helpful reflecting on these teachings as an adjunct to Zazen. The two together really bring us to uh, an understanding that we can't get by reading, just by reading a book. And the most important thing is just that practice of dropping. It helps to have reflected because it helps us see uh, some of the ridiculous things that we entertain in our mind. We need to be, we need to follow through with that. You know, we may know 
that uh, chastising ourselves and saying I'm no good is totally unhelpful and therefore unwholesome, but are we willing to let go of that? Sometimes, you know, we were, we're all aware of people who can't stop praising themselves, but it's just as big a problem. Maybe it's even a bigger problem, people who can't stop criticizing themselves. As, as Ajahn Chah says, we can train this ignorant mind. We have to be thorough and we have to be, we have to be convinced and we have to be patient because you can do it once, twice, ten, a hundred, a thousand times and it may not change a whole lot. Some patterns are etched deeply. Some patterns are written in our genes. But it does change. That's why there's this image in, in Buddhism, of, in Zen especially, of training an ox. Ox is so gigantic, massive, strong, to pull that head away from the grass and back onto the path again and again and again. It's really a good metaphor for what our practice is life like. And as we go on, we begin to get a sense of freedom. And it's freedom from grasping and from pushing away. <clears throat> it's basically freedom from the cause of suffering. begin to realize that there's nothing that we have to protect. The so-called self doesn't need our protection. All we need to do is to do our best. We begin to realize there's no place we need to go. We, we, we have less of a compulsion to cut to the chase, get on to the next thing. Maybe we'll begin to sit rounds of zazen where we're not looking forward to the end. It's amazing to me when I examine myself how many times a day that comes up. You know, how soon will this conversation be over? <clears throat> how soon will I have finished mowing the lawn and I can go on to something else? But the minute you see that, just go right into it. Go right into what you're doing. It's really where happiness lies, where salvation lies. All right. Because we didn't do any chanting ahead of time, it's probably way longer now that I've talked than I normally would. So we will stop now and recite the four vows.